girlfriend testifies, testifies that they both had a serious drug problem. Did that help or hurt the prosecution? And what about the expert who testified about what Officer Chauvin should have done once it was clear that Floyd was no longer resisting? You'll hear my answers on The Dirt Show. celebrates uh, Easter has a meaningful Good Friday, a meaningful Easter. Those of you who are celebrating the last days of Passover, Chag Sameach, have a good, happy end of the holiday. Don't eat too much matzah. And uh, let's turn back uh, today to the Chauvin trial, which I've been watching very closely. You know, for a living, I do autopsies on trials. I read transcripts. I do appeals, mostly on failed defenses, because only the defendant has the right to appeal. If he loses the prosecution, uh, the case is over. If they, if they lose, um, I can't tell you today who's going to win and who's going to lose, but I can give you an analysis of what's been happening in the last couple of days, and it's kind of cut both ways. The two most crucial witnesses uh, have been um, George Floyd's uh, girlfriend, a uh, woman friend, um, who testified in a way that both helps and hurts the prosecution or both helps and hurts the defense. On the one hand, she humanized um, uh, Floyd's uh, drug addiction. She confessed that she was having trouble with drugs as well, and he was, and they were trying to break the addiction. Um, that humanizes it. On the other hand, that's totally irrelevant. It really doesn't matter whether it was his fault or not his fault, the fact that he had drugs in his system uh, is a relevant scientific fact in determining the cause of death. It wouldn't have mattered if somebody had put the drugs in his body against his will. So, although emotionally it probably will matter to the jury if they see his drug addiction as not his fault but really a medical issue, on the issue of causation it matters not one bit. And so the prosecution benefited emotionally from her testimony, but her testimony seriously hurt their scientific case. She acknowledged he had a serious, serious um, addiction problem. She was not aware that he also had apparently a heroin problem, but she did testify that a relatively short time before the events at issue, before his death, he was admitted on an emergency basis to a local hospital for a drug overdose. Now, the prosecution is going to try to use that to help their case. They're going to say, he used so much drugs, so many drugs, for such a long period of time that his tolerance increased, and that, therefore, that decreases the likelihood that the drugs caused his death. It increases the likelihood that the death was caused primarily, exclusively, largely, however you want to put it, by the knee on the neck rather than the combination of knee on the neck and heavy amount of drugs in the body. After all, if he had a high tolerance, then he would have survived even taking the, quote, lethal amount of drugs that were in his body when the autopsy was performed. So on balance, her testimony was a draw. Um, psychologically, emotionally beneficial to the prosecution, scientifically beneficial to the defense, and of course the prosecution did the right thing by fronting her testimony. Uh, if she was going to be testifying in any event by the defense, 
then it's better for the prosecution to put that out there, uh, let the jury hear that the prosecution is not afraid to put on the truth, the evidence that, yes, he had a drug problem, yes, he had a drug overdose. What we don't know, and I can't evaluate the prosecution's decision unless I knew this, what I don't know is whether the defense would have called her. If the defense would not have called her, then I think it was a serious mistake for the prosecution to put her on the stand. Um, but probably the defense would have called her, but maybe not, because maybe the defense would have said, look, why put a face onto Mama, the girlfriend? Uh, he called her Mama. Mama may have been a reference to his mother. It may have been a reference to his friend. We don't know. But uh, the defense may or may not have called her if the prosecution hadn't called her. We haven't seen any indication of that. Uh, and even if she's on a witness list, that doesn't compel the defense to call. The defense has the right to call witnesses or not call them based on the entirety of the case at the last moment. There's no compulsion to call a witness. If it's not on the list, and uh, if, if the witness is on the list, and if the witness is not on the list, if the need arises based on the prosecution's testimony, normally the defense gets to call those witnesses. So her testimony, very emotional, very humanizing, basically a draw, slight advantage to the defense, but that advantage would have come anyway had she testified for the defense and probably the prosecution did the right thing by putting her on, fronting her in anticipation of her testifying for the defense. The second witness that really, I think, helped the prosecution, and I think helped the prosecution because the defense did not necessarily do a good enough job of objecting, was the uh, kind of quasi-expert police official who, after some objection, was allowed to answer a leading question by the prosecution. Had I been a defense attorney, I would have objected to the question as leading. Uh, and, but he basically answered the question by saying that under good police practice, um, Chauvin should have stopped putting his knee on the neck or the shoulders of Floyd once he was subdued, once there was no possibility of fighting back. Now on cross, of course, they raise the question, but sometimes you can subdue somebody, the person can even be unconscious, and then when consciousness returns, he can be very violent, and so uh, maybe you have to keep him subdued, but on the other hand, they had handcuffs uh, on him, on his back. They could have put handcuffs or leg cuffs on his feet as well. Uh, there still was no good reason for the knee on the neck or the knee on the shoulder to be done for nine minutes. On the other hand, the testimony of this quasi-expert, not clear how much of an expert he was, more of an expert based on experience than other kinds of expertise, did seem to imply that it was perfectly okay to subdue uh, Floyd with the knee on the neck until such time as he became unconscious, or at least until such time as he was no longer screaming or yelling or in any way seeming to resist, although I didn't see very much resistance once he was on the ground with handcuffs. I did see resistance when they were trying to put him in the car. He was claiming he was claustrophobic, and presumably he was, and there should be a police procedure for dealing with something like that, maybe bring a big van that's less closed off than a small uh, police car, but uh, that's for the future, not necessarily to determine criminal liability on behalf of, of Chauvin. But if he, in fact, uh, was engaged in proper police conduct at the beginning, 
when he first put his knee on the neck, then I think the state loses any claim of a felony murder here. Then you can't say that it started out as an assault, which then caused death. According to that police expert, at least, it may have started out as a legitimate police practice, which then, over time, as he lost consciousness, the policeman should have stopped the constraint and taken the knee off the neck. But when you make that a matter of degree, you really eliminate the felony murder. Felony murder rule requires that you prove that the death resulted from a felony. I think the prosecution is going down the wrong path with this. I don't believe the courts will uphold a felony murder conviction in this case because the felony was not independent of the death. It was directly part of what the law calls the race gesti, the entire body of what was going on. It was one transaction. Knee on the neck gradually causing death. Felony murder, I think, is absolutely improper. The way I've been teaching it for 50 years in first-year criminal law and the way I practiced it and won numerous cases uh, based on felony murder and argued many, many cases based on that. I don't think they have felony murder in this case. So I don't think they have second-degree murder. I don't think they have third-degree murder. I think from what I've seen, they have a very strong case for second-degree manslaughter, but uh, that would not, I think, satisfy the prosecution, and it would certainly not satisfy the people outside of the courtroom. And so, you know, we have two trials going on. We have the trial that those of us who are watching it are seeing. It's a very interesting trial. It's being well conducted. The judge seems like he's very good, very astute, very fair from everything I've seen. Uh, all of the attorneys seem quite excellent. Um, some are more emotional than the others. Some seem a little boring. But, you know, juries, I think they're, all the lawyers are likable. All the lawyers seem to have a grasp of the law and the facts, and uh, it's a good trial. Um, from the point of view of just watching and observing a trial, it's a good trial. It's not the O.J. Simpson case. The O.J. Simpson case was full of drama and attacks, and the lawyers on both sides were trying to score points, and they were trying to, uh, you know, win the audience on on television. We're not seeing that here. We're seeing workmanlike lawyering on both sides a little bit too long. I think the prosecution is over-trying its case. I think they're keeping the witnesses on the stand too long. They're spending too much time qualifying them, too much time talking about their background. It takes quite a while until you get to the meat of their testimony. And, you know, jurors, like anybody else, have a certain level of tolerance for listening to testimony. And if I were trying the case as a prosecutor, I would move it along. I'd move it along. I would one, two, three, four. I'd put witnesses on for no more than 20, 25 minutes at a time. And uh, I would get right to the point um, and, and, and uh, leave uh, issues of qualification, unless they're challenged, um, to very, very short uh, conclusory uh, statements. I don't think we need to know everything about every day that every police officer spent doing whatever they were doing. That just doesn't seem particularly probative and helpful to the jury. In the end, as I've said before, let me just remind you of two issues, only two issues in this case. Did the knee on the neck cause the death? Complicated. There's factual causation. There's legal causation. 
There is but-for causation, there is proximate causation, there is a range of issues. I actually spent a little bit of last night looking up the law in Minnesota on causation, and it is a mess. It is not clear. And so in the end, if the jury comes back with a question saying, Your Honor, tell us what to do, we have come to two conclusions. Conclusion one, that but for the knee on the neck by Chauvin, he would still, uh, Lloyd would still be alive, Floyd would still be alive today. Let me say that again, please. So, there is a possibility that the judge may get, there is a possibility the judge may get questions at the end of the case from the jurors, and the questions could go something like this. Your Honor, we've come to two conclusions. Number one, we have concluded that Chauvin's act of putting his knee on the neck of Floyd was a but-for cause, that but-for the knee on the neck, Floyd would still be alive today, notwithstanding the fact that he had high blood pressure and heart conditions and a lot of drugs. That's conclusion one, but we've also come to a second conclusion, that had the knee been put on the neck of a perfectly healthy person without any drugs in his body, he'd still be alive uh, today. So there were two causes of the death, the combination of the knee on the neck with the pre-existing medical conditions, regardless of whose fault they were, the drugs in the body, the high blood pressure, the heart condition, contributed to the death along with the knee on the neck. What do we do if we've come to both of those conclusions? And the judge is going to have to give guidance on that. And he'll probably give guidance in the form of some vague terms, substantial causation, significant causation, proximate causation. I don't think he'll use but for causation because I suspect that would be reversible error in a criminal case. Also, he's going to have to instruct proof beyond a reasonable doubt on all the elements, including causation. So that's element number one. Element number two is going to be intention. Depending on his level of intention, you get second-degree murder, third-degree murder, or second-degree manslaughter. And intention has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And the key there is something we just don't know. Will Chauvin take the stand? He is the best witness as to his intention. Will he be believed? That's up to the jury. But if he takes the stand as the final witness for the defense, the jurors will go into their room to deliberate with his testimony on their mind. And his testimony will be absolutely central. Not his direct testimony. We know what that will be. It's his cross-examination testimony. How will he do when he's asked hard questions by the opposing side? We don't know the answer to that question. We don't even know the answer to whether or not Chauvin will testify. I suspect that his lawyers don't know the answer to that question. I'm sure they've prepared him to testify, but I'm sure they've prepared to make an argument if he doesn't testify. So stay tuned. This is a fascinating case, fascinating trial. It's being well covered. And I think it's a real education for those of you who are interested in how the criminal law operates in a courtroom when there is so much pressure outside the courtroom. So keep watching, keep calling me, keep uh, making your comments, uh, and I'll try to answer as many as I can on The Dirt Show. Now comes the wits to The Dirt Show. Let's have the first call. Hello, Professor. This is Tom in California. Uh, when you discussed the other day during the police officer's trial 
that a hypothetical is that the jury can come up with two causes and not be able to decide between them, wouldn't it be the case that coming up with two possible causes and not being able to decide is reasonable doubt by definition? Thank you. Love the show. It's a great question, and I'm sure the defense will argue that. They will argue if you can't be absolutely certain that it was the knee on the neck that was the cause of the death, then you have to acquit. But the judge may instruct that that's really a question of law, not a question of fact, and he will define for them what causation means. And if he says causation means a significant contributing factor, then probably the prosecution will have proved that beyond a reasonable doubt. So stay tuned. Let's listen. Let's hear what the evidence is. We haven't yet heard the scientific evidence from the defense. The defense case will be largely scientific and maybe testimony by Chauvin. We don't know. And then there'll be an instruction. And then I think we'll be in a better position to know what role reasonable doubt will play in their deliberations. Good day, Professor Dershowitz. This is Bob from New York calling about the Chauvin case. Uh, I haven't watched it yet. I, I hope too soon, but I haven't had the time to actually watch it, and I'm, uh, I just would like to hear the analysis of it at, at this point. And thank you very much for your um, discussion on causation, including but for, et, et cetera. So my question is, uh, what if Chauvin had tased Floyd instead of doing this, and then Floyd died? Okay. Is there any other restraint techniques that also could have resulted in the death when combined with Floyd's medical condition? And is there a list of choices that police officers in Minneapolis can go through to decide based on how they determine with their limited medical knowledge the physical uh, state of their of the uh, perpetrator, their alleged perpetrator? Um, so I have another question also. Could the swallowing of the drugs just prior to being subdued by Floyd be either an equal or more contributing factor to his death, right? So, I mean, I guess these are all ways to put doubt in uh, the jurors' minds by the defense, but I'm just curious on your take on it. I look forward to hearing, hearing about it. Well, you'd be a great defense attorney. You're absolutely right. All of those are designed to cause reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors. Look, what they should have done, they just should have sat him down. His hands were already tied behind his back. If they wanted to put leg cuffs on him, they could do that. He did not pose a danger to five police officers who were fully armed. Um, and the crowds would not have gathered if they had just had him sitting down. It was the decision they made to lie him on his stomach which could have killed him even without the knee on the neck, uh, possibly. That is, lying uh, a big man uh, on his stomach could cause um, the lungs not to be able to expand. There is a cause of death called burking. Burking comes from uh, John Lewis Stevenson's story called Burke and Hare about two uh, people who were hired by doctors to dig up corpses to do autopsies because they were prohibited by law in Victorian England. And instead of digging up the graves, they killed and rolled drunks coming out of bars. And the method of causing their death was to compress their chest with very strong arms around their chest, not allowing the lungs to expand and causing their death that way. 
so that's what could have happened here, even without the knee on the neck, if they had just made him lie very hard against the, the pavement. You ask about tasers, sure, and that's happened. Um, that's happened in other cases where a taser is used, person has a heart condition, uh, high blood pressure on drugs, and the person dies. It would pose some of the same questions that uh, are posed in, in this case. Um, the same thing could be true even if somebody used uh, lethal force via a gun and the person had a, say, a bleeding condition, uh, hemophilia, or is on a blood thinner, and say, a shot in the leg to disable him, but the person could not have the blood stopped and he died of blood loss. All of the questions would be the same, and there are so many cases uh, on this. Um, I mean, there are cases a person is shot, taken to a hospital, and doctors commit malpractice, and he should have lived, but he dies. Uh, so the doctors are a contributing cause, but he wouldn't have died but for the shooting. So these are all issues that we teach in criminal law and issues that the courts will have to decide in this case. Great question. Uh, yeah, hello, Alan. This is Gerald Heidman. <clears throat> I was calling you. Uh, my question is this. If your vaccine is so good, why are you worried about being around me if I don't have one? Um, anyway, I just would like your answer on that. Thank you. The vaccine, like many other vaccines, works to about 90% uh, efficiency. Uh, that's not good enough. Uh, would any of us get on an airplane if we were told that you have a 90% chance of surviving or get into a car or eat food that uh, only had a 10% chance of, of killing you? So I want to get it up to 100%. And the way to get it up to 100% is not only for me to be vaccinated, but for you to be vaccinated. So if you're 90 percent and I'm 90 percent and uh, you're being vaccinated reduces the uh, likelihood of spreading it to me, it increases uh, my safety. So, um, yeah, I care deeply, even though I've been vaccinated, I care deeply to make sure you've been vaccinated because I want to increase the public safety and, and, and public health. And so my question to you is, why don't you want to be vaccinated? I'm protecting you by being vaccinated. Don't you think you have a public obligation to protect me and your loved ones and people around you by being vaccinated as well. So keep watching, keep calling me, keep uh, making your comments, uh, and I'll try to answer as many as I can on The Dirt Show. An important part of The Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216 710 0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.